Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at your question. And yet you continue to do so. (laughs) Hello everyone and welcome to episode 9 of Real Talk with me, Anna Pajajski. This episode, well, it's a bit of a strange one really because we're talking about virtual materials. My guest is Ollie Cleveley-Jones, who's a co-founder and lead computational designer at Valkyrie Industries. And I started by asking Ollie the seemingly quite simple question, what exactly is the material that we're going to be talking about? It's a tricky one, I suppose, to put in the sort of the framework of a podcast like this, but uh, it's simulated materials, I suppose. So we're talking about uh, bits and bytes used to create the impression of a material within a virtual world. Nice. And these are all sorts of materials. They are, yes. So, um, I mean, I guess we're going to sort of talk about the breadth of which materials are simulated in computers today. So these might be, uh, you know, the sort of visual graphics that you get in a computer game or film today. Or, um, I don't know, the steel girders in a building that's being simulated for construction purposes. Okay, so it's used for both fun and for, like, serious applications. Absolutely. (laughs) So, I I don't know, a lot of it will be based around the physical properties, though, or kind of, you know, trying to get towards that, because um, that seems to be the most successful, you know, imitating real-world physical properties of materials um, within the computer environment. Awesome. Okay, so how did you come to virtual reality and modelling materials in this way? Um, So my background's a bit of a strange one. I actually started off in architecture, which uh, uh, was what I did my undergraduate in. And I uh, quickly realised that I wasn't going to be a very good architect. But uh, (laughs) there are a lot of uh, very talented people. And um, and so I I kind of my my passion actually for visualising architecture and for kind of building these models and trying to create these um, impressions in virtual space of what a building will look like kind of took over. So I was doing quite a lot of visual work. Which again, it's it's, uh, it's fascinating because you have to develop these these materials to simulate. You know, what does rust look like, or what does core ten steel look like, or I don't know, timber trying to pick out the grain on a table in in a, a visual render for a new restaurant or new building or something similar. Um, and I, I quickly became interested in the kind of underlying computational aspects behind this. Um, so instead of going down my part two route, the next stage in the masters. Um, I took a course at the Bartlett School at UCL, which uh, specialises in computational architecture. And, I mean, they they do fascinating stuff there, and that's anything from um, 
kind of how these things work to simulating uh, tessellation and how buildings could perform under stress and also actually creating kind of creative algorithms that do these solutions for you so things like genetic algorithms or um, cellular automata what does that mean <laughs> these uh, these guys um so basically you, you a, a genetic algorithm is a kind of you set up fitnesses and then you set this computer off and it kind of starts growing these structures or growing these uh um, solutions and it tests them versus a fitness and every time you go through an iteration the, the fittest survive and they get to reproduce and their kind of characteristics uh, continue on to the next generation so you can you create these quite unusual structures and one of the uh, good examples of this is is how now when you see a kind of computationally derived part for say I don't know a bracket um you'll see these these very interesting shapes or forms that we wouldn't probably devise as human designers, but which have kind of morphed into, in quite a sort of, well, dare I say, biomorphic way, um, into uh, these quite almost organic-looking structures, which, when tested, actually show a huge amount of uh, fitness for their very specific use. That's so cool. So does that mean that architects of the future will be out of a job? Because computers will just be designing these buildings themselves. Um, I mean, I think these are more like tools for the kind of discrete moments within the design process. You know, you kind of, you realise that you want a specific bracket to deal with this steel girder situation. And so instead of going and buying an off-the-shelf solution or, or designing something specific, you go and put it through one of these interesting algorithms which will devise... Uh, this kind of bizarre and beautiful, very specific to this one job uh, joint, and then go and use you know some kind of very clever new process of casting or three D printing or something to create it. Okay, so how does material simulation actually work? So I guess what we've been talking about so far has been much more about um, how materials behave uh, physically in terms of uh, their physical interactions. I don't know the kind of the stresses of physics and the engineering behind it. And I've also touched upon uh, my my experience in physical-based modelling, which is where we kind of look at how light hits a material and just try and describe it in those senses. Both of those are slightly separate issues. And actually, when you deal with them in, in the computer, they tend to go through slightly different cycles. So you'll have the, the visual renderer, as it were, mm-hmm. which will generally be uh, some kind of ray tracing-based setup. And what that does is it sends like lots and lots of lines of light off into the uh, scene and it sees how they bounce around and come back. And um, and then it basically ends up as a pixel on your screen in the same way that it has kind of historically all the way through uh, to the origins of rendering in the 80s, probably about Cornell University. And um, that will look at the surface properties of the material that it hits. And then um, it goes through a rendering system, generally physical-based, and it will kind of... It looks at essentially the roughness of that, the roughness and, and the colour, as it were, of the surface. And that's determined by a whole load of different things. But the way this is done is it considers all surfaces to be reflective. And it uses a number of maps to decide how that surface is going to be reflective. So it's got a sort of a colour map. It has a, a bump map or a normal map, which decides just how rough the surface is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a specular map, which decides just how shiny that point of the surface is. And there's some very clever ways of uh, determining this. But what it essentially means is that what is really, in reality, a flat polygon within the, the computer, in a 3D space within the computer... Can then have all kinds of roughness and uh, 
colour properties applied to it without actually creating these very computationally exp- expensive uh, surfaces. So you can pick up things like wood grain, like the tiny little crevices in it, just by seeing how the light ray would hit it at that time without having to model these tiny, tiny little imperfections in the surface. All virtual spaces are made up of polygons, which are these just basically flat surfaces. And the more of those you have, the more time it takes for the computer to work out where they are. So what we're trying to do here is kind of cut down on the amount of time the computer has to spend so that we can make more and more uh, detailed environments. And then I guess it's then just about deceiving the senses enough to kind of pass the cross the uncanny valley Mm -hmm. and make you feel as immersed (laughs) as possible within this space. And with these um, virtual reality environments that you're creating, Mm. do you then allow people to experience them with like VR headsets or is it purely sort of on a screen? The first stuff that I was doing was very much about a kind of screen-based render. And that's, you know, that's to sort of sell the idea to a client or uh, someone who who wants to buy into this architectural Mm. dream. Um, (laughs) What we now work in, actually, I went part of a a startup working specifically in virtual reality. Um, So virtual spaces... It's, I guess it's trickier because you're, you're, it's much more computationally expensive. So there are a few tricks that we have to use to kind of make things uh, look as pretty as possible whilst keeping it running as quickly as possible. Because um, I'm sure everyone's heard of virtual reality sickness. If, if the frame rate drops, then it's like a real sort of punch to the gut. You feel very sick very quickly. <laughs> oh, really? Like seasickness almost? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's a sort of full-on dizziness effect. And so you've really, really got to make sure the user experience is up to scratch. Right. Um, and we're actually, we're trying to add a, sort of another depth to that immersiveness and that we're trying to add the feeling of touch um, and weight so that when you run your fingers over the surface of something in a virtual reality you can feel its texture and when you pick something up or interact with it you can feel its weight or the pressure that it applies to you. Oh wow so this is to do with like hardware that can fit on your hands as well as the sort of headsets over the eyes that most people be familiar with. Absolutely. So we're talking about wearable technology that kind of just increases the level of immersiveness. So is this quite a new technology or has there been a lot of history in creating virtual reality materials? Um, the, the technology is, is called haptics. These technologies have been around for quite a while, actually. And again, tend to be around gaming uh, and entertainment. I think all the way back to Nintendo 64, back mm-hmm. in the 90s, they <laughs> had uh, had that sort of tech around. And they're, in, they're pretty prevalent in... Uh, in most uh, contemporary game controllers. The 80s was, again, it was much more sort of 2D graphics. But for a start, I suppose that's that's the whole idea of getting the pixel onto the screen and simulating mm-hmm. a, a material of sorts. Um, and has gaming been the driving force for this industry? I'd say gaming and film were probably the bigger, the two of the biggest. Uh, the kind of the advent of people like Dreamcast and Pixar in the 90s, they really did push the kind of boundaries of what we can expect from material simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the great examples is the fur in, uh, in Monsters, Inc. Mm-hmm. And the amount of research that goes into things like that. And that I think even more recently, actually, there's some great f- uh, film online about how the snow was simulated for Frozen. And that's a wonderful combination of physical modelling as to how the snow will behave as it rolls down the hill. Mm-hmm. And they've done a fantastic job on that. But also, you know, what does it sort of look like? How do you capture the reflection of something that's quite abstract? Yeah. Um, and, you know, an individual snowflakes are wonderfully complex things. So how does it all perform as this big uh, network of 
of uh, chain particles, as it were. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. So when you watch films, do you find that they're ruined for you now because you're just like <laughs> concentrating on the beauty of the simulation as opposed to the storyline? I get lost in the immersion of it. I don't know. I, there are there are always that be those moments. Yes, it's it's kind of it's always sad, isn't it, when you see behind the magic? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Where you just think, God, that's amazing. How did he do it? As opposed to, God, that's amazing. <laughs> just yeah. take it in and appreciate it yeah so this technology can be used for good in things like architecture yeah, absolutely um are there any areas where this technology could be used for evil <laughs> that's a great question i suppose um a lot of this a lot of science fiction is focused on virtual reality mm. and black um, mirror yeah and quite. Like. black mirror is a great <laughs> example but it goes back to, i think i think the term cyberspace was an 80s one i think that was possibly william gibson in a film called Neuromancer. And in that, they talk about, you know, sort of mental hacking or brain hacking or delving into people's personal space um, and shared perceptions. And the idea, actually, everything from The Matrix to the forthcoming Ready Player One talk about this slightly worrying uh, future, dystopian future, where we do spend all of our time in virtual hallucinations, often partly because they're potentially better than some of the more grim futures that are imagined in similar sci-fi's or the grim futures that we're imagining at the moment but um yeah but i think those those ideas and people there's a lot of talk about it about um the extent to which uh is virtual reality potentially a good thing or could we be harming our own perceptions of reality mm. or you know creating spaces in which people retreat from society Japanese term is a hikimori, someone who has okay. essentially taken themselves away from society to exist within cyberspace or uh, uh, retreat into themselves. Yeah. And that's already a kind of phenomenon within Japanese culture, which is obviously quite a unique superculture. Mm. But um, it is potential for, uh, I don't know, more destructive use of virtual space. Yeah. What are the other applications for it apart from architecture? I think a lot of uh, a lot of the physical side of things again is is around engineering problems, mm-hmm. um, and probably more recently, a lot of it is going towards biological research. The sort of the new cusp of technology. A lot of it is focusing on uh, biohacking or how do we uh, start simulating these things. Mm-hmm. There's an artist actually who. Uh, I remember going to see his original exhibit a few years ago, but he's since really pushed on with his work uh, called Andy Lomas, who's done the who he created these wonderful spring systems that simulate cell, cellular growth. But uh, these systems they're wonderful; they're almost grotesque. They sort of expand outwards every every uh, few seconds. They, there's a binary split, and they just mm-hmm. kind of go bop 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 and <laughs> pop up. I'd really advise everyone to go and have a look at them. Okay. I'm really not doing them justice through my <laughs> description. They kind of look like frog spawn almost expanding outwards. But every time they do it, they physically adjust and move around, and you get the sense of the surface tension. Can VR help us develop new materials and invent new materials that don't even exist in the physical world yet? I don't know about inventing. I know that there's there's a sort of the wonderful um, thing about VR is that, yes, a lot of the things that we're trying to do are to simulate the world as sort of accurately as possible. But obviously we can totally break with that norm and we can move totally away from it. We, I think one of the more popular games of the last uh, couple of decades is one called Portal, in which you create these two joined circles and you can move through one into the other. And you do that just by shooting a sort of blob on a wall. And it creates this set, this sort of hole through space-time that you can walk through. And the wonderful thing about that is when you look through it, you can see the hole in the other place. So you can create these sort of um, 
almost Asherian uh, paradigms or paradoxes, sorry, mm-hmm. of architecture where uh, <laughs> where the rules of space and time are broken. And okay. there's a lot of scope for that within virtual space. Um, I worked with a colleague uh, last year where we uh, created these sort of blobs that you could pick up and put on your head and you're actually when you're inside them it's like looking through the wormhole into another <laughs> dimension it's quite okay. bizarre and the closer you get to it the uh closer you are to sort of moving through the gap so mm. you can start to you get these kind of weird interactions of light and how and, and start to understand how, what happens when you do start to break the rules a bit okay so more actually experiments in physics as opposed to physical materials almost it's almost physics and a bit of perception because it's, mm. it's very hard to contemplate what this would feel like if without kind of experiencing it right it's, i suppose again um that scene in interstellar where he approaches the wormhole and mm. you start to see what it's like maybe to fall into a black hole or into a wormhole and right. come out the other side and it's actually that was a really nice bit of simulation it was uh it was a smart ideas and this light's falling in closer and closer mm-hmm. and it is sort of circular yeah. And that's kind of what we were playing with and experimenting. Yeah, so is there a lot of psychology involved as well then? Well, I'd imagine so. Again, it's probably not the best researched area. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Another friend of mine uh, was, you know what, I haven't, caught up with him in a while but he was going to undertake this uh, art project where he lived in vr for a month okay and he was going to be in the gallery goggled in eight hours a day wow. and before it he had to go and have a, a whole load of kind of psychiatric evaluation mm. and if i'm honest the guys did say it's not a, an advisable thing to do <laughs> mainly because no one really knows what the kind of long-term right. impl- impacts of yeah. uh, spending a lot of time in vr would be but in terms of your work do you have to take into account because you're essentially tricking people's minds yeah so do you have to understand the minds that you're tricking before you can simulate i guess so a lot of um we're just going through user testing a lot at the moment actually but uh, a lot of our testing is done on ourselves so <laughs> okay. um so yeah so and um, as much as we try to do uh kind of we try to imagine it from a totally holistic manner. A lot of the best testing is just quite subjective. You go and see what it feels like. And actually, when I was designing a user interface a while back, 
uh, using natural hands. And this is, again, what we're trying to move towards, to, towards using the body as, as the controller, as it were, okay. within the space, because it always feels a bit clunky to have uh, some other medium of technology. A lot of the tech at the moment revolves around having controllers. We're trying to use your hand. So I modelled this hand. It's very simple, just a low polygon hand that you could use to press a few buttons, move things around, etc. And um, I was testing it for 20 minutes or so. I took the goggles off and picked up my phone to answer something. I looked at my hands and I was like, oh gosh, they don't feel like my hands. <laughs> really? It's, yeah, it's a really, really quite bizarre moment. Right. And I was moving the slider on my phone, having just been moving a virtual slider around yeah. and whatnot. And it was a real out-of-body experience. It was really? actually quite shocking because it didn't wear... It, it took a good five minutes where I was like, okay, these are hands. They're attached <laughs> to my body. They're part of me. They're not... Yeah. <laughs> they're not they're a sort of grey amorphous blob that I'd been floating around <laughs> in cyberspace with. Well, I'm also wondering if, if there were people that had a hand amputated, mm. they could then experience having two hands again in virtual reality and what would that do because i know people often talk about like phantom limbs if you have something removed your brain still thinks it's there or can still feel it in some way absolutely yeah like i want this seems like quite a similar sort of brain trick that has awareness of the body Mm. and then when you start messing with that or changing it um yeah how the brain kind of reacts to that i I mean our our company uh, i work for company called valkyrie industries and we're we're very much looking into potential applications for our technology in in people with uh missing limbs or prosthetics and a lot of it's obviously to give back the sense of control but also to kind of to give back the sense of touch for that uh missing limb and you're right phantom limb syndrome is often the brain trying to compensate for something it feels it's missing so it's again it's a psychological um opportunity to add that sort of sensation back a lot of what we do is not actually creating and similar to what i've been talking about with the physical simulation of uh, materials we're trying to kind of create a simulacra mm-hmm. uh, and a very good approximation of what a material does how it behaves because right now we don't have the computational power to go right down to you know the atomic level or the quarks or whatever so what we're doing is talking about what does the surface how does the surface behave or how does a rock behave when i throw it how does it physically bounce and so on and so forth um with our what we're doing at the moment haptics are still i wouldn't say they're crude but they're still relatively uh simplistic we're using um a number of motors and other uh, muscular stimulation techniques so what we're trying to do is create that um illusion um and we do that through a number of means and i guess if someone had a, uh, lost a limb and they were using a prosthetic and they needed to have feedback from that because one of the harder things to do i mean robots still struggle with it is to know how hard you're gripping something and therefore how to manipulate it yeah. um so if there was a means by which you could start to feel that then you you know your brain actually does a great amount of work filling in those gaps and it's similar when uh, someone's in virtual space and they're trying to handle something. One of the great uh, examples that's in uh, the Vive Steam uh, initial game set at the moment is a bow and arrow. And when you pull it back, the controller that's that's pulling back gives this kind of tuk, 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 tuk. And the great thing about it is you come out of it after playing this bow and arrow game for a bit and you realise your arm's sore because you've been pulling back quite tight and you've been tensing. And right. it's because your brain feels like it should be because that's what it's it yeah. knows the physical world to be doing. And you're like, God, that was actually quite hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Realistically, you've been waving around two little flas- plastic objects. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, more kind of uh, positive 
uses would be for training uh, surgeons or pe- doctors or people in dangerous hazardous, envi- hazardous environments mm-hmm. where um, either it's very expensive to do that sort of training normally. I, I know that um, certainly my friends who are doctors who have gone through training have had one or two cadavers over the course of their training that they have to share with other people because mm-hmm. not that many people des- donate their bodies to medical science. Sure. And obviously you can't make mistakes when you're in surgery. No. So um, this potentially... Uh, as a training tool for someone who's a junior surgeon um, brings down the cost of that and that's that's hugely beneficial for people all over the world um, and for hazardous training or again potentially remote control so if you're in, if you're piloting say a robot and you need to feel the grip or you need to feel something like that and you get that sort of feedback mm. or if you're working on an oil rig and you're, you know that sort of environmental training is very hard to set up. Sure. Um, whereas if you put them through a simulated environment, yeah, you could uh, achieve that. What has been your favourite VR environment that you've created? Oh, gosh. That's really hard. Um, one of my favourites that we're working on at the moment is a very simple doctor's room. But because we were sort of worried about what the guy on the bed was going to look like and about the realism, in the end, we just put a crash test dummy. <laughs> but the lovely thing is you can go up and start to feel his pulse and uh, right. and and manipulate the body a bit and feel the weight and stuff. That's that's my favourite one that we're working on at the moment. Sweet. Um, if I think of any more, then I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if I can ask you any more about material specific stuff mm. so you mentioned that you model a lot of the optical properties of materials yeah. and how they will look in virtual reality and also the mass and the weight yes. and how they feel um do you model like how physically how a surface would feel kind of bringing those two together in a way um there's a property within the engine that i mainly work in uh, which is called unity called a physics material and that generally determines uh, the bounciness and its friction so what we're essentially building upon are those two things um so that will give us a sense of like the softness almost of the material and also the roughness i mean that's we're kind of building based upon those two things again it's quite a sort of rudimentary way of modeling how these guys behave sure. but uh it's it it's achieved some pretty surprising results with some quite sort of simple values yeah what's interesting is how much do you actually have to put in and how much will the brain fill in because other properties i'm thinking of would be like thermal properties so Mm. like metal feels colder than plastic if you told someone that they were picking up steel would they just feel that it was colder that's or not i don't know that's a really good question i think uh, i'm I'm actually going to make a note of that (laughs) for our next user test Uh, but that's fascinating because uh one of the other things we haven't really spoken about as acoustic properties mm-hmm. and obviously um you know if you knock something against uh if you bang something against the wall you get a sense for it's what it's made of mm-hmm. uh there's a lot of work going into acoustics within virtual spaces as in how do you tell where something's coming from and uh the i think certainly within the engines i've worked with acoustic properties of materials isn't so well dealt with you kind of you tell someone that they're in a cave and so you're going to get more echoey sounds mm-hmm. as opposed to working out how the acoustics is actually going to work but there's a huge amount of work going into that now particularly driven by virtual reality where immersiveness is everything when we're talking about designing new materials that don't yet exist mm. in the physical world yeah. um one interesting example with like um optical properties would be metamaterials uh-huh. which are ones which manipulate light um using the structure of, of the material as opposed to actually what it's made from mm-hmm. 
and it strikes me that in virtual reality, if you're able to get the properties exactly right, then this would be a really great way of being able to quickly design new metamaterials. Again, like you were saying with the kind of the evolution algorithms. No, what was it called? The, the genetic algorithms. The genetic algorithms, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could just like, there are so many different um, variables that you can switch really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. I'm going to have to have, have a research into metamaterials. Yeah, and then you can like put invisibility cloaks in your yeah, in your VR. <laughs> or just I mean, one of the things that you can just sort of do is turn people on and off. <laughs> it's the Amazing. wonderful binary world of computing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Suddenly, a virtual reality sounds quite appealing. <laughs> <laughs> so, if people want to get involved with VR and actually experience it themselves, where can they go, or how can they start getting more involved? in this kind of world the most accessible equipment right now is probably the um, headsets for the phones so you can get something called a google cardboard for i think around seven pound fifty or something now online they're they're very uh very easy to get hold of and they're quite a low-fi approach to it but you can start to get the feeling for what it's like to kind of goggle in um the retail headsets are a lot more pricey you need a, a pretty good computer to run them um in terms of getting involved with actually making content and playing with the uh, environments uh, I use an engine called Unity and um, there are plenty of other things out there Unreal is also supposed to be very good um, and they're, they're pretty easy to get cracking with there's some great training material online and YouTube's always a very good source um, so yeah I'd, I'd, I'd absolutely advise anyone who's interested to go and have a look I actually for my sister for Christmas this year uh, she was working she's a doctor she was working on Christmas Day we all went off skiing without her as a family which is lovely I know so for um, for her for Christmas I gave her a uh, I wrapped it all up and on Christmas Day she opened up one of these Google Cardboards and I uh, sent her a link and she managed to kind of go to the top of the mountain on that day because I'd gone up there and taken a big 3D photo modelled up the mountain and uh, sent it over there so that she could be up on the top of the mountain with us (laughs) that's so nice that's a great example of this technology being used for good (laughs) (laughs) or slightly evil I don't know whether it's slightly rubbing (laughs) her face in it (laughs) so look where we are (laughs) (laughs) it's all the more real (laughs) and I guess also you could you could VR into her hospital or whatever she works right no quite I guess it's I mean vice versa and yeah. that's exactly what she was trying to do and I'm, I'm she's been incredibly useful actually for yeah. advising us on some of our hospital uh, Sweet. and medical based bits and bobs nice so if listeners want to follow you on social media or look at what you're up to mm-hmm. um at work where can they have a look online to see what you're up to so we are on uh our websites at valkyrie-vr.com um and uh we're just about to launch our sort of instagram and twitter accounts and whatnot we've been quite uh We've been quite stealth mode of late because due to sort of patenting technology and whatnot, all the kind of boring stuff of being a startup. But um, no, we're very excited to actually start showcasing some of our technology soon and uh, be delighted if anyone wants to get in touch or have a look. Great. OK, so listeners, you know where to go. And will you be um, will you be putting out some like open source VR environments for people? That would be cool. That's the that's the intention. I guess uh, one of the things that sort of VR is living and dying on at the moment is content. Uh, we're trying to create as much great, um, use cases for our technology as possible. Uh, we're aiming really to um, create this entire package that anyone could then take and put into their virtual environments so that they can use our feeling of touch and weight and all the other bits and pieces. Um, so yeah, if anyone wanted to use our kit, uh, we're going to make a developer kit available later this year and we'll be sending out the various bits of technology as well. 
Nice, exciting. So watch this space. So that was my chat with the brilliant Ollie. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show. Now to the questions. When I put this one out on Twitter, a lot of you asked, can you 3D print virtual reality? And I'm going to say yeah, because lots of virtual reality relies on wearable tech. And 3D printing is a really great way of making wearables, since you can tailor the shapes to the individual person. The second question this episode comes from friend of the show, Keris Bradley, who asks, is reality immaterial? Keris, I'm just going to let that pun speak for itself. And finally, there are still some tickets left for my show about smart materials at the Nottingham Festival of Science and Ideas on the 19th of February. Last time I did this show in London, someone's genuine review went like this. It's not every day that you get to hold tungsten or play with rubber. So... Listeners, please do keep tweeting us at Real Talk on Twitter. It's always so lovely to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the podcast, do tell your friends or leave us an iTunes review as well. So that's it for this time. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on Real Talk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.